Well, we're picking up right in the middle of our summer sermon series on the book of Ephesians. We'll be jumping into chapter 4 this evening. And as you've probably already guessed by my presence on stage, we're, we're moving out of the part uh, of Paul's beautiful description of new life and unity in the church and into the part where we talk about what hopeless moral failures we are. Just kidding. <clears throat> Actually, we are going to talk about that. Um, so to recap where we've been for the last several weeks, we're looking at a letter authored by Paul to the church at Ephesus, which was likely one of a few circular letters that were written to the churches in Asia Minor that were passed around and read by multiple congregations. And this church, this letter specifically is addressing Gentile Christians, presumably recent converts who are now faced with, with uh, a drastically different lifestyle than the one that they've become accustomed to. And the letter makes abundantly clear that all Christians, both the Jew and the Gentile convert, are now one family, one body of Christ, all having an equal share in the inheritance from God the Father. And this this diversity, this body of many colors, displays the multifaceted wisdom of God to the heavenly host. Angels watch in awe as they see the diversity of the church displayed, displaying God's unique wisdom. One of the strongest themes of this book is unity. Make every effort to maintain unity of the spirit. Bear with one another. Submit to one another. Forgive one another. Build one another up. We are members of one body. There is one body and one spirit. And he stresses this because a unified, loving, thriving body of Christ can draw people toward Jesus in in hopeful curiosity. We're not going to draw anyone in if we can't maintain the unity of the body of Christ. Nobody wants to join a group of people who are all mean to each other. If they wanted that, they could play Halo online. And there's this real urgency for Paul in this idea. He, he, he begins the verses with, So I tell you this, and I insist in it on the Lord. You must no longer live as you once did. And there's urgency around this idea because he knows that people are watching this new church and they're deciding something about God. People watch you and I, and they decide things about our God. We're like a trailer, and people are watching us deciding whether or not they want to buy a ticket for the movie. Ephesus was a, was a huge city, the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, and it was, it was avidly pluralistic, and, and it was originally a Greek colony built in the 10th century BC. It came under Roman rule around 129, 130. And, and the Romans, instead of imposing their deities on the Greeks, so admired Greek culture that they actually just assimilated the Greek gods into their own pantheon. So, so when I say avidly pluralistic, I don't mean there were just maybe a few gods for them to choose from. There were myriad options from multiple cultures over multiple centuries. Ephesus itself was home to the Temple of Artemis, or Diana. So true Ephesian loyalists would have made a special place for her in their religious practices, but it was generally recognized that even while she held special significance, everyone should be free to worship whomever and however many gods they saw fit. So for the early Christians at Ephesus to make the claim of serving the one true God, this wasn't simply unpalatable, this was nearly treasonous. This was walking into Pittsburgh in a Cleveland brown shirt. While it's not technically illegal, we're all kind of looking for a reason to arrest you. Any monotheistic claim in the bustling religious sundry of Ephesus would have been uniquely noteworthy. So without a doubt, the unconverted Gentile residents are watching this new fledgling church and deciding something about God. What's different about this God that makes him better? What can he offer that Artemis can't? 
and this has lost no relevance for us 2,000 years later, we are living in an avidly pluralistic society. And it's incredibly unfashionable to claim to serve the one true God. People don't invite you to their dinner parties. And simply claiming verbally to serve the one true God without having something to show for it, without looking or living differently is white noise because there are so many other less demanding options. The only way to turn ahead is to actually be different. Unity is attractive, but unity amidst diversity is startlingly so because it is so very rare, because it doesn't occur naturally. The first time I told Rob I loved him, he said, thank you. And he's not a jerk, he's actually a wonderful human being, so after I had stopped crying uncontrollably, he patiently and gently explained to me that love is, is a commitment word, and he's right. Love, the, 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 the long-suffering, kind, patient, gentle, biblical kind does not occur naturally, it's a commitment. And unity, too, is a commitment. It doesn't occur naturally, and so when we see it, it is attractive because of its rarity. A bunch of very different people with nothing else in common who can come together and be kind with one another because of a devotion to their God is something worth exploring. So Paul gives us here our motivation for maintaining the unity of the body. It, it is our strategy to fight for those who are far from God, who observing the, the love and the unity that characterize the Christian life might be able to walk past a buffet of other lesser gods like wealth and power and money and, and, and love toward Jesus. People are watching us and deciding something about God. When I was growing up in Pittsburgh, my mom sent my brother and I to Bishop Leonard Regional Catholic School because she was uh, rightfully so a little concerned about the, the conditions in the Pittsburgh public school system at that time. But what I soon learned was that Bishop Leonard Regional Catholic School was a special place where parents of terminal bullies sent their tiny monsters and hoped for their reform. The entire school consisted of 226 savages and me. I didn't hear the gospel for the first time until I was almost out of high school. Out of high school. I went to a Christ-centered learning institution for five years, and I didn't hear the gospel until I was nearly an adult. And not because nobody said it. There were some wonderful nuns and priests that left lifelong impressions on me because of their kindness, but for the most part, I was just trying to fly under the radar of this horde of rabid degenerates that they locked me in this building with for eight hours a day. A verbal explanation of the gospel was not going to cut it when most of my instruction about the God we both served was done by bullies. I might have heard the gospel maybe a bunch of times, but I was watching these Christians and deciding something about God. People watch us. They're watching us and deciding something about God. So, so much of what Paul addresses in this passage are things that, that imperil our unity and by extension our mission as the church. So we're going to be looking today in chapter 4, verses 17, <clears throat> 17 through 32, and we'll dip our toe into the beginning of chapter 5 as well. And these verses, uh, just so you can kind of track, uh, could, could be kind of crudely broken down into three parts. The first part is, is who we were. The second part is who we are now now that we've crossed the line of faith. And then the third part is how do we live as we are now? So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. 
They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And I do want, I, I want to pause here for a second and, and, and just acknowledge that I know that every time, yeah, like every time I've gotten up here, I'm speaking on a passage discussing moral behavior, and I want to acknowledge that it can be kind of tedious to hear the same person talk one more time about all the stuff that you should not do. I don't think that that Summit has tried to intentionally make me the moral police of the church. If they have, that would indicate a serious lack of research on their part. So, so let me just say that when I talk about this stuff, I'm not, I'm not giving you some kind of hypothetical synopsis of what it might look like to be affected by sin. I am generally speaking from my experience of my own failures. So if and when I speak forcefully, it is because I know personally the violence that certain types of sin can do to the human heart including and especially my own. So I beg your indulgence as we tackle a passage this week that has much to say about personal moral sin. So the way that Paul describes the rebellion of the Gentiles in this passage is progressive. It begins as an inward thinking and then comes out as outward behavior. He describes what could be called the downward spiral of sin. It begins with a hardness of heart. This is what we would call willful disobedience. This is, this is knowing what God wants you to do and not doing it, or knowing what he doesn't want you to do and doing it anyway. And not because you don't know, but because you just don't care that much. And then after the willful disobedience, they become darkened in their understanding. The Greek word used here for understanding is dianoia. It's, it's, it's also translated mindset, and it's a neat word because dianoia is not just, it's not an individual thought. This is actually someone's ability to think, your capacity for reasoning, your ability to follow and draw logical conclusions based on facts. And this is important because Paul's not just saying, hey, they have some wrong thoughts. We all have the stray wrong thought, DIY plumbing, clear Pepsi. But he's saying, listen, this is more than that. This is not just a wrong thought. This, their, their ability to draw reasonable conclusions, their ability to think has become bent. Having a darkened dianoia, a broken mindset, means that they can no longer see reality as it actually is. In his commentary, Peter O'Brien says, the unconverted mind suffers from the consequences of having lost touch with reality and is left to fumble with trivialities and worthless side issues. And I, th I think it's important to remember that when Paul is saying this, he's also speaking autobiographically. Before Paul was Paul, New Testament superhero, he was Saul. He was this incredible Jewish scholar renowned for his learning and his zeal for the law, and in fact, his persecution and murder of Christians. Murders that he committed because he believed with his whole heart that he was protecting the sanctity of Yahweh's law. He would have passed a lie detector test, believing that he was doing God's will. The terror of the broken mindset is that no human wisdom can outthink it. We worship charisma, charm, intelligence, so much so that these can act as a perfume that masks the stench of a dying mind. You can be super smart. You can be well-read. You can have all the answers, and you can still be wrong. So in the downward spiral of sin, the first step is willful disobedience, and this leads to this faulty mindset. We start by walking in the wrong direction on purpose, and then our compass becomes broken, but we don't even know it. The next step is a loss of sensitivity. 
Once that faculty of thinking has become bent, we begin to, to regularly engage in behaviors that no longer seem that wrong to us. We become desensitized. The word used here means the loss of the ability to feel shame or embarrassment. And then the final step is a loss of self-control. So, so once our wickedness no longer causes these warning signs of shame or guilt or embarrassment, then there's no longer an intrinsic moral boundary. There's no internal restraint to keep us from plunging wholeheartedly into every kind of sin. And they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That last bit, that full of greed is a in the Greek is a prepositional expression that means with covetousness. So it's not just another vice being listed. He's not, just, he's not saying debauchery, impurity, and also greed. He's saying impurity with covetousness, which means a, a continual lust for more. They've willfully disobeyed. Their compass has become broken. They've become desensitized. They no longer try to control themselves but no matter how much they indulge, they cannot stop wanting more. So that's depressing. And let's be honest, if this is a characterization of the unconverted Gentile mind, I'm kind of sinking into my chair a little bit listening to it, so stick with me, my story gets better. We're moving on to the good news. The good news here is that, is that that's Paul's description of who we were. That's not who we are now. That's who we were before we came to know Jesus. So don't get stuck there. I'm sure I'll have the opportunity to come back around to that later and make us all feel bad again. Paul goes on to, into the next section, the, the who we are. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Those phrases, put on and put off, these occur in a verb tense in the Greek that we don't have a perfect English equivalent for, but the closest thing that we have it would be, I guess, the past tense. This is called the aorist tense, and it, and it means something that you've crossed a line that cannot be uncrossed. And this is important because Paul is saying, listen, you've already crossed the line of faith. Do you understand what good news that is? The putting off and the putting on has already happened to you as a result of the transforming work of God through Jesus Christ. This is who you are now. This is not a command. This is a fact. This is a fact. And because of this fact, you must and now you actually can live differently as a result. But then smack in the middle of this aorist tense is another line, be made new in the attitude of your minds. And this verb is a present infinitive, meaning this is something that continues to happen. Every day, always, continually, we must be being made new in the attitude of our minds. So the hard work, the work that, that, that was impossible for us to do on our own, that is already done. It's already happened. God made us new people in Christ, but we must pursue the renewing, the continual renewing of our mind. We must always be seeking to keep our compass in tune. And I think it can be confusing, this, this idea of... of already being something that we are still becoming. Uh, I think most people tend to lean to one side of the pendulum or the other on this. They either are like, it's already happened, I'm made new, so all I have to do is just be myself. And then on the other side, there's the people who will work themselves to death trying to live up to these standards and, and they're making themselves and everyone else miserable because of their legalism. It's a weird concept. 
So the, the best way that I can think of to describe it is in terms of marriage. Marriage is like the only time that you go from being one thing to a moment later being an entirely different thing. You take vows, but you haven't yet had to live up to the challenge of keeping them. But you are married. Rob and I went to a wedding in Georgia. It was a few years ago. We had, we had been married a couple of years, and, and our friends had written their own vows. And their vows were, like, super specific. They said things like, I promise to always put your needs in front of mine. And I promise to never speak words to you in anger, even when you really frustrate me. So by the third one, which is something like, you know, I promise to always support your hobbies, even if they leave no money for mine. I look at Rob, and he's like red in the face, and I'm like red in the face, because we're just suppressing our laughter. They might as well have been saying, you know, I promise to never leave dishes in the sink overnight. I promise to always put the seat down. And, and to be fair, these were wonderful people, and they're probably doing, and they're so great that maybe they're still living up to these promises and more, but Rob and I are not marriage experts by any stretch. Well, he might be. I'm a terrible human being. And we're laughing because we know how hard it is just to adhere to that, to that bit about in sickness and in health. We have a toddler. When Rob gets sick, I actually get angry with him. How dare you expose yourself to biological pathogens before our child is toilet trained? If he's lucky, I push a bowl of soup under the door in a hazmat suit at the end of the evening. It's every man for himself. I quarantine that biz. It's hard to be married. And I'm sure that more than once we have abjectly failed at our vows. That doesn't mean we're any less married. When you take your vows, you cross this definite line, which is now in the past. The work of getting married has already happened and cannot unhappen, but the work of being married is all ahead of you. This is our condition as the bride of Christ. We have already put off the new self, old self and put on the new self. We've already gotten married to our bridegroom. But every day we have to do the work of being faithful. So therefore, we're moving into that, that third section now, the how to live as we are now. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer and must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Paul gives us these, these pairs, almost like he's made us a, a T-chart of how to put off the old self and put on the new. Don't lie. Tell each other the truth. Don't sin in your anger. Deal with it promptly. Quit stealing. Instead, work hard and give, give generously. Don't slander or speak unwholesome talk. Instead, speak encouragement. And we could, really, we could really dig in here. There's a lot that could be said about these sins and their opposing virtues, but for the sake of time, we're just going to look at one or two of them. One note of particular significance, I think, is that all of these sins have a communal sense to them. Remember the major theme of unity in Ephesians. And every sin, no matter how personal, has, has corporate implications, but these ones especially so. If you lie to your spouse about where you were that night, she's not the only one who gets hurt. So do your friends. So do those people who had you held up on this Christian couple pedestal who are now dealing with the fallout of their disappointment. They are watching you and deciding something about God. If you blow up at your kid, he's not the only one who becomes insecure. 
Your whole family now tiptoes in fear of provoking your wrath, and they are deciding something about God. If you steal an idea from your coworker, he's not the only one who becomes calloused. Pretty soon, everyone's just looking out for number one. If you slander and gossip, everyone becomes less willing to be vulnerable and transparent, and they watch you, and they decide something about your God, and it hurts everybody. These are communal sins with communal consequences, and we must put them off. Your sin will affect other people. I want to take just a minute with with the exhortation on anger here because it's interesting and I think it has a special relevance for where we are in our unique place in history right now. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. It's, It's interesting because almost everywhere else in Scripture, we see anger expressly prohibited. But here, it's allowed, although limited both in scope, don't sin in your anger, and in length, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. And I think this is because Paul and the other authors of Scripture know how quickly and easily human anger can move beyond that into simple resentment if it began as righteous indignation at all. If a guy comes up to you at 7-Eleven and he smells like liquor and he's holding a sign that says, homeless God bless, and he asks you for some change, what are you angry about? Are you angry because you feel like he's not telling you the truth? Have you never lied? Are you angry because you feel like he's not working hard? Have you never been lazy? Are you angry because you think he's trying to steal from you? Have you never taken four paper shot glasses of frozen yogurt without actually buying a cup? Have you never taken the hotel towels home? What are you angry about? And is it righteous? Or is it simply irritation because you feel morally superior. We have brothers and sisters in 33rd who are worshiping alongside of us right now, who I know have on occasion through no fault of their own been in a position to ask for charity in order to eat or sleep in a bed. So I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you to give them money or not, but what I'm suggesting is that if you're going to be angry about something, be angry about the addiction that's ruining his life. Be angry about the years of physical abuse that she's finally taking her kids and trying to escape. Be angry that panhandling pays more than some jobs. Be, be angry at the right things. And, and you know what, hey, maybe none of that's true for him. Maybe he is just lazy and, and selfish, and in that case, be angry at the rebellion in every single one of us, in you and in me, right back to our very first mother and father that bent the human heart into the unrecognizable ruin that it is today. Be angry at poverty, at selfishness, at addiction, at racism, at sexual slavery and oppression, not the people who are ensnared by them. Be angry at everything that does violence to the image of God in men. What are you angry about? And if you're more angry right now because you feel like I've said something political about homelessness than you are about the fact that homelessness exists, then we're missing it. We're missing it. The reason it's mostly prohibited is because a lot of our anger comes comes from places of injured pride, selfishness, jealousy, malice, revenge. James makes this point perfectly. Everyone should be slow to become angry for human anger 
does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Human anger, even when it starts out well, is in a constant state of temptation to degenerate into sin. That's why even here where it's permitted, it's given the strict time limit. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And, and this isn't literal. After all, you could become angry after the sun has already gone down. It just means deal with your anger promptly. Don't nurse it. Because it has devastating communal consequences. I think we see a prominent example of this being played out in our, in our news media seemingly every week. Acts of anger and violence at the hands of a very few have made very many people in our country afraid of people from different cultures, religions. We view strangers with suspicion and in some cases with misplaced hate. Because to have something, an object or a person upon whom to spill our wrath makes us feel like we are in some way neutralizing the threat, but we're not. We are aiming our arrows in the wrong direction. And we should get angry. And we should weaponize the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, but we have to use it as a weapon against the real enemy. We are battling for nothing less than the souls of men. And if we, if we kill them before we win them, then we're fighting for the wrong side. In the middle of these pairs, Paul gives us this, this motivational statement. Don't give the devil a foothold. The word rendered foothold here means opportunity or chance to exert influence. He uses it in Romans also when he says, uh, don't take revenge but leave room for God's wrath. Don't leave room for the devil. Nursing our anger, not dealing with it promptly, leaves room for the devil to exert his influence, and we're making it easy. He doesn't even have to create evil from nothing. He's just using the resources we've already provided for him. We're leaving room. We, all of us, individually and all of us corporately, as the body of Christ are engaged in a battle, in every thought, in every decision, in every deed, we are fighting against the schemes of the devil and the spiritual forces of darkness, which Paul is going to go on to talk about in just a couple chapters, but, but this struggle takes place in the moral sphere, in the hearts and in the minds of believers, and as in any war, there is no standing still. There's no neutral ground. We are always leaving room for one side or the other. And so our sins have a communal impact, but so do our opposing virtues. The Catholic school that I went to, there was a priest, I can't remember his name, but while I was going to school in the pit of despair, it started to rub off on me, and my life of crime began at the tender young age of nine. We had this, this event called Santa's Workshop each December where the, the kids could bring in their little piggy banks full of money and, and buy little trinkets for their parents to surprise them with at Christmas, back scratchers, GI Jesus figurines, bracelets, and the like. And I didn't have any money. So, so when I thought no one was looking, I, I shoplifted this tube of red lipstick from Santa's workshop and then snuck into the bathroom to show it off to these awful human beings that I was trying to fit in with. And the head monster, her name was Kristen, she looked at me and was like, I'm telling. Unless you bring me $8 tomorrow morning, I'm telling. And I was terrified. 
I went home, I didn't have any money. My mom didn't have any money for me to ask for. So while I was at my grandparents' house that night, I remembered that my uncle had this jar that he put all his quarters in, big change jar that he was using to save up for a vacation. And so I waited till everyone was up, was downstairs, and I went over and I took 32 quarters out of that jar, and I wrapped it up in a little blue giant eagle shopping bag, and I delivered it to the head monster the next morning. And while I knew that I was out of, of danger of being told on, I was riddled with guilt. I sat in the bathroom and I cried until I finally just decided I needed to out myself to the powers that be. And so I asked to talk to this priest. I'm gonna call him Father Awesome. And I went to Father Awesome and I poured my, my sneaky little nine-year-old heart out and I waited because I thought this man was going to impose some terrible penance on me, public shaming, saying the rosary, which I could never remember. But instead, I saw a tear, a real compassionate tear, roll down his cheek while I told him my tale of willful villainy. And then he blessed me, and he prayed to God on my behalf, and he sent me on my way, and he never told another soul and so while I didn't come to know God with certainty that day, I got my first taste of how to know him when I see him. Our sins have communal impact, but so do our virtues. When you tell the truth, people become less suspicious. When you don't sin in your anger, when you restrain it and deal with it in the right ways, you can heal wounds that you haven't even inflicted in your family. When you, when you work hard and give generously, you gain both the respect of and influence within even the secular world. When you speak only encouragement, everyone gets more willing to become known, gets braver. When you choose well, we all get better. We are always leaving room. But we can, with each thought and feeling and decision we conform to Christ, leave room for the right side. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This battle that we're engaged in is winnable, and in fact has already been won by Jesus. The outcome has been decided. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That's why we can win. That's why we have won. But this battle still has casualties. On May 8th, 1945, the German forces made unconditional surrender to the Allied powers, effectively ending World War II in the European stage. This is VE Day. But it took an additional 119 days for the last of the German soldiers to surrender on remote Bear Island in Norway. That's two days past VJ Day, which was the end of World War II for the entire world. Even after the victory was sure, people still died. This is the condition, this is the reality we find ourselves in as the body of Christ. Jesus has already won the war, but the enemy has not yet laid down arms. There are still casualties. And so while I don't want to undersell the victory of Jesus here, I also don't want to undersell the urgency with which Paul speaks about this moral battle we're fighting. When we damage our unity, we damage our greatest weapon, 
our ability to draw people to Jesus because of the attractiveness and uniqueness of our lives of love. And all of these moral departures will damage our unity. That is why they grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is the manifestation of the Godhead that is, that is at work in you. He gives you wisdom. He's the comforter, the counselor. It is through him that we receive inner strength from God. He's a person. And I never thought much about the Holy Spirit being a person because Jesus is so personal that it's hard to think of the Holy Spirit as anything other than a force by contrast, but he's a person who can feel and be grieved And as the unifying power of reconciliation in the church, he is deeply grieved when our actions damage the unity of the body of Christ. Because because what is all this for? The the, the purpose of these exhortations, put off the, the old self, put on the new self, maintain the unity of the body for what? So that we can be people who live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, that other people want to know the God we live that way for. The Holy Spirit is grieved when he sees the faces of God's beloved lost walking by without us leaving room for him to woo them near to Jesus. In the already not yet, lives still hang in the balance. This is our calling. This is the mission of the church. So you know what? There's, there's no such thing as just this once. We are always either tuning or tinkering with our compass. When we begin down that path of willful sin, we may not be compromising our salvation, but we are damaging our compass. So even if we make it to heaven in the end, we can lose our way on earth. And the tragedy of losing our way is that people will follow. Verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ and Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. Here at the end, it's almost like Paul looks back over his list of prohibitions and says, okay, guys, in addition to this stuff don't do any of this other stuff, and don't think up any new stuff to do. Because he knows the problem with morality is that people, human beings, are endlessly creative. I see this with my two-year-old. Ember, don't stand on the chair, so she stands on the table instead. If it's just about morality, if it's just about staying within the rules, we will find a way to sin that's not covered in the rule book. We're people. That's what we do. So he's saying, he ends this passage with this beautiful bridge into the next section by saying, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. He's saying, don't just be moral people. Be people full of love. Love. Yes, obey, but, but not out of fear, out of gratitude for what God has already done, for the fact that he has brought you home. And figure out what he wants you to put on and put off to make the church a place that people want to come home to because they're watching you and deciding something about your God. And so if you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, and you're looking at this list and you're thinking, I'm not sure that I'm ready to let go of some of these things in order to follow Jesus yet, let me encourage you, follow Jesus. 
don't try to be moral first. Don't try to live up to the law so that he'll accept you because that is actually, that's an underestimation of our predicament as sinners. For the heart that has not yet crossed the line of faith, morality is hospice work and what we need is surgery. So follow Jesus before you try to let go of any of it and then you may find that over time those things begin to let go of you. And if that downward spiral stuff was hitting dangerously close to home for you, the, 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 the willful sin, the broken compass, the desensitization, the loss of control, and the continual lust for more, and you are a Christian, and you're afraid of what that means for you, listen, you're still married. God's not going to divorce you just because you've been cheating on him. We've all cheated on him. He loves you. And what he wants most is for you to come home. And what Paul is telling us in the latter half of this passage is that you have the power to do it. There is nothing more supernatural holding you to your addictions than longevity. You've been living as a bachelor so long that living as a spouse doesn't feel like you, but you know what? Feelings are real. They are not truth. You're still married no matter how you feel about it and your bridegroom misses you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that no matter how far we've strayed from the path that you've given us, you still love and accept us. You've still made room for us in your kingdom by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to draw others into that kingdom with the way that we live, with the way that we love each other and we love and serve you. I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity as we leave here tonight. What, what do you want us to put on? What do you want us to put off so that we can make the church a place that is attractive, a place that, that, that wins people for you instead of pushes them away? Lord, we're grateful for for the way that you have blessed us in your grace, and we pray that you would equip us to continue to draw others into that grace while there is yet time. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.